we're going to get into today, as I was talking about a little earlier and kind of alluding to, guys, we're going to get into a little bit uh, of something that's called, uh, in theological circles, soteriology. That is a big, big word that uh, can make your eyes cross and also make you snooze in the morning. Does anybody have any idea what that big word, soteriology, means? Any idea? <laughs> the study of social media. There you go. <laughs> what soteriology is, it's based upon the Greek word that's called soteros, or basically save or salvation. And it's the study of the history of salvation, of God's saving works throughout time. And the way that we see the Lord and the way that we see him work in history with the history of Israel, with the prophets, uh, and then ultimately with Jesus and the apostles to be able to bring about his saving acts here on this earth. And the reason that I bring it up today is this is a hot topic right now uh, in apologetics because one of the things that critics try to do with Christians is they try to get Christians to foul up and to be able to see that the Bible is not truly the Word of God. You cannot trust the Bible. You cannot do these things. And all of these things are things that they say. And they come up with these reasons and these things that sound like they're right. They sound like they're right. And in fact, one of the things that we know from the history of salvation, the study of soteriology, is how Satan works. How does Satan work with temptation and with things? Anybody? He deceives. How does he deceive? What are some of the things that we see in the Bible of how he deceives? It's not so bad. It's not really that way. Did God really say? How about he didn't mean that. How about it is written... How about that? Satan using the Bible to be able to get Christians to be able to get all fouled up. It's really, really interesting when you see some of that because some of the things that gets us fouled up is in a lie. If there's just enough truth there to be able to make it believable, that's just like setting the hook on a fish. All you got to do then is reel them in. Setting the bait. Just enough truth to make it sound like, oh yeah, that sounds good. But then what we as Christians do is we don't investigate that further. We don't look at it in light of all of Christianity, of law, all of what uh, uh, of God's saving works are in the Bible, in all of theology and how we understand the Bible. And we can find ourselves hooked into a lie and find it very, very hard to get out of it. That's why here in March... Uh, the uh, student, uh, the Rethink Student Apologetics Conference is coming back here to Cottonwood Creek. We had 1,500 uh, uh, teenagers, young adults, uh, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles here uh, for the Student Apologetics Conference this past uh, February. It was a great, great time. They're coming back in March 29th and 30th, and the topic that they're going to be talking about is, Can We Trust the Bible? Can we really trust it in all of these criticisms and things that are going on? It's a really, really big topic right now. And they're going to address it with our teenagers, with our college students to be able to help them understand that the Bible is true. You can trust it and you can stand up. And the Bible does stand up to the criticisms and the things that people will bring up to try to trick us as Christians. And so I've been thinking about all this lately and um, a vacation that I went on here recently was really, really interesting. Have y'all heard about the uh, Creation Museum and the Ark uh, uh, replica that's in Kentucky? Has anybody been to it yet? Anybody been to it? Okay. I uh, spent uh, some time there with my family uh, on vacation. Uh, we went through the Creation uh, Research Museum and we went through the Ark Project and it was absolutely amazing to be able to look at from an apologetic standpoint 
the proof and the evidence there is not only for intelligent design and for creation and things like that, but how something as amazing as the ark could do what the Lord had it do as he had Noah build it in the Bible. It's, it was really amazing as we walked through and as we looked at things uh, within the museum and then as we got to uh, where the ark was and when you're standing there in front of that life-size replica of the ark built two specks of what the Lord gave Noah in the Bible, it is absolutely awe-inspiring. And what is even more amazing is that there are in other secular uh, uh, cultures and other religions, they have their own flood epic that they talk about. And they talk about the kind of boat that was built, how the boat looked and how, the, how the, their ark uh, worked uh, within their religion. And what was really, really neat is part of that ark project is that they did scientific models that were scale replicas, except they were, of course, scaled way down of those different boats. And they showed that this particular religion and how they did the boat, here's what would happen in a worldwide flood with this boat. And it would show that as the waves came and as these things with the seas being that high, that boat would capsize, or that boat would flip, or that boat would sink or that boat with the waves and the crest, you know, of those waves, you know, from uh, the top of the wave to the bottom of that trough of how that boat would not be able to keep people alive. But then they get to the ark and what the ark looks like in those models within that water that they do and, and the, the scale replica of it. It is absolutely amazing to be able to see that ark on how it stays upright, how it's able to handle all these types of waves as it's hitting it, as it's cutting through some of these huge waves that, that were coming on at it with the scale replica of all that. It was also amazing to go inside. And one of the things that they tell you in the ark is that they have some artistic freedom that they take because we do not know what the inside of the ark looked like except for what the Lord told Noah about the three decks, you know, of how uh, the Lord said to be able to build it. But what researchers did is that they got with archaeologists uh, uh, and they discovered from thousands of years ago what were technologies that people used to be able to uh, sell animals and do things like this as they did in that time. Because you remember, people have been selling animals. They've been doing this thing with the animal trade and stuff for thousands and thousands of years, just like uh, they do today. But also one of the things that they came up is, for those of you who are in human resources management, think about it. Of all the animals and things that were on the ark, how many people were on the ark to be able to work with all those thousands of animals? Eight. This is a boat that is comparable in size to a small cargo ship, container ship, that you see today on the high seas and in ports. How in the world can eight people take care of thousands of living things? Well, they showed you a possibility of how they could have done it. Absolutely amazing to walk through here. Based upon archaeological and historical evidence of that time, it sees, it gives you an idea of the amazement of God that goes just beyond the ark and how he saved them, but also how he gave Noah and gave the people of that time the knowledge to be able to put all of those different details together of how eight people could take care of all of that. And then another thing that they raise up is how in the world could all of those thousands of animals and think about all the giant, you know, giraffes and all the things that are big as, as hippopotamuses and dinosaurs and, and uh, all this other kind of stuff that could be on the ark. How in the world could all, all that be possible? Because you think of a giraffe and how tall a giraffe is and how tall of some of these other um, uh, animals and how big that they are. How in the world could God bring two and put them all on there? And how in the world could God bring all of these things and make it happen? Well, another thing that they come up and they said, well, think about the Punnett Square. I go, think about the Punnett Square. What is that? Well, if you remember from your biology and from your science, the Punnett Square is how two species and their dominant and recessive genes 
when they procreate, how those dominant and recessive genes come out. And they were able to show what the Bible talks about, two of every kind that goes into, uh, if you remember how the biological thing goes about genus, species, you know, family, all this other kind of stuff. You can have two of every kind, but for example, you can have one, um, and I can't remember the exact one, but you can have an example like one uh, brown, brown bear, uh, like from the Rockies area, and one black bear, like from uh, the Appalachian area. And with a Punnett square of dominant recessive genes, those two bears can come up with seven different families of bears, including polar bears, including all these other kind of things. It's amazing to think about that. But then you think, that's all fine and dandy, so I, we can see how it can fit, but how can it go even further than that? How can all those animals fit? to be able to do that. It's, it's just got to be impossible. Well, they bring up another thing. Why do we have in our mind that God brought two of every adult animal into the ark? Think about it. Why would God bring two of every adult animal into the ark? Here's what the researchers and things said. When we start to think about it, and the wisdom of our Lord and his salvation history and how he could really make all this stuff happen, make it plausible and make it certain. What if the Lord brought two of every juvenile animal and brought them to the ark? Juvenile animals are smaller. They don't eat as much. They don't defecate as much they don't take in as much water but also they live longer and have more time to be able to procreate after they get off the ark after that year I mean my mind was just like holy cow it is possible do what? Did they address snakes? <laughs> they did. And they, t and they showed some things about based upon ancient history of how some of these animals and how they kept them in some things, even like uh, moths and other things that are like that with some of the, with the insects and the animals about how in that day and time of how there was technology to be able to keep moths in there and just all this interesting technology based upon archaeology of how this stuff is very certain and how very plausible. But when you start thinking about these details of how the Lord worked, it really begins to engage the mind and see that our faith is not a faith that is based upon unseen evidence, that is based upon just faith for faith's sake, but it's faith that's based on reason. And that's why people like Frank Turek, who's going to be here on March 29th and 30th, says, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Because the jump of faith that atheists make are much more of a jump than what we as Christians have to make because our faith is based on evidence. So that's just a little synopsis of what I went to. But while I was there, I started thinking about another time that I had in seminary. And a time that I had in seminary when I had one of those epiphany type moments. And the epiphany type moment that I had is something that also comes up in apologetics in this day and time. And that is, critics will say that God has changed. That God has changed. What does the Bible tell us about the God? About God? He changes not. He's the same yesterday, today. And tomorrow. But they'll say he's changed. Look how the Lord acted in the Old Testament. Look at all that judgment. Look at how Israel was going through and wiping out all of these people and all these things. Look about what happened with the prophets and the way that Israel was judged and, and all these things, terrible things that was happening and what the Lord was doing in that day and time. And then contrast that with Jesus and the grace and the mercy turning the other cheek, all this other kind of stuff. Critics will say, God has changed. You cannot trust the Bible because it says that God doesn't change because God is clearly judgmental in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he's graceful. And I had a wonderful seminary professor from my very first Old Testament survey course that said to us 
Don't believe that lie. God showed grace in the Old Testament. He showed grace. And we're going to talk about that today in the story of Noah. If you go to Genesis chapter 6, we're going to talk about what happened with Noah as God was preparing Noah to be able to get ready to be able to go onto the ark. But as we get onto this, one of the things that we need to do is we need to study a little bit and review about our soteriology, our theology of the salvation works of God in history. Okay? The reason that we have to look at these things is because of how God is and how we are. How are we as mankind? We are what? We are bad. We are sinful. God, on the other hand, is what? Good. But it's not just a good from the standpoint of good outweighs the bad. There's a biblical word that describes it, and it's holiness. God is holy. The character of God is very important in the study of soteriology because what we see is that we see that God's character as holiness is to put it simply in this way, is that holiness is utter and absolute perfection. Now that utter and absolute perfection, men, was not what we saw walking down the aisle at our weddings. When I told my wife that, I got the look. Because you remember, I'm married to an Italian, okay? And not just like, you know, 5%, 10%. This is a 50% Italian. And that she's got that Italian blood in her. And we were talking about this last night. And she goes, but in that moment in time, I did look like perfection because you told me that. I said, oh, yes, sweetheart. Oh, yes. It wasn't until after we were married that I found out otherwise. And then I had to duck or, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I have to nag it on. I have to nag it on sometimes because you got to remember, I'm an old Southern boy that's been thrust into this Italian family. And you've noticed that I will do this sometimes and I'll do these things. I've had to learn how to talk in an Italian family because if you talk like a Southerner and just say, hey, y'all, it's so good to see y'all. Italians will sit there and they will absolutely not pay attention to you and literally say, you go over there and sit in a corner. We're not going to have anything to do with you. You have to be loud. You have to be boisterous. You have to use your hands. You have to come to the point to be able to get your point across to somebody that you're yelling and screaming and you're thinking, if you're a Southerner, I'm going to have to call the cops before this evening is over. Because these people are yelling, they're screaming at somebody. somebody. Somebody is going to pull a knife on somebody. I just know it. But then the end of the night, when that family gathering is over, Everybody is hugging and kissing and saying this is the best night they ever had. They need to do it uh, uh, together more. And then they leave. And then this southern boy is left there going, dear God, what have I gotten into? <laughs> so I do this sometimes, be able to nag on my wife now that I'm kind of part of the family. But our wives are not perfection, as we know. And you are not perfection either. I have to apologize to my wife sometimes. I said, I'm sorry today, sweetheart, but today you realize that I'm not perfect. And she just laughs and whatever, because that's been a joke, you know, for the last 22 years of our marriage. But God is perfect, utterly, utterly and absolute perfection. What does that mean? Well, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, the Bible says that there is none holy like the Lord. In Hosea 11, 9, the Bible says, for I am God, not a man the Holy One in your midst. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil. Hebrews 6.18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. Those are the things, some of the characters of what that holiness means, what it means to have utter and absolute perfection. And God's holiness pervades in His entire being and shapes all of His attributes, including how He relates to creation. For example, His love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. Even His anger and wrath are a holy anger and a holy wrath that is without sin. 
without evil. And that is hard for us to understand. But at the same time, I say, if we could understand it, how big would God actually be? Would he be God if we could understand all the aspects of him? Would he be God if we as finite could completely and totally understand the infinite? As the philosopher, the Hulk said in the Avengers when he took on Loki, puny God. If those of you who've seen that movie. That's why we have to understand that because of God's holiness and because of man's sin, that something has to be done about it. For man being sinful, Romans 3, 10 through 18 talks about how no one who has ever been is righteous in and of themselves. Romans 3, 23, we all see and know in that about how all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But the Bible also talks about, about how to be with God, that man also be, must be holy because what does the Bible say? The Lord says that we are to be holy as God is holy. But we are sinful. We are not utterly and completely perfect. And sin cannot be in God's presence. Well, what happens when sin is in God's presence? Remember, we've got to look at salvation history. Isaiah 6, 1 through 6 talks about how when Isaiah was in the throne room of heaven and he heard the angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, if you remember, uh, uh, Pastor John Mark and others have talked about before, there is no comparative and superlative cases in the Hebrew, in the ancient Hebrew language. Comparative and superlative means good, better, best. Okay, or more or better. Okay, there's no uh, type of word that does that. So what they would do to be able to say how big or how great something is beyond anything else is they would say it three times in a row. So when you hear the words and see the words in Bible, holy, 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 and what the angels are saying, that is describing the utmost and utter holiness beyond anything that we can imagine absolute utter perfection okay that cannot stand and be around sin so when Isaiah saw these things what does the Bible say those of you who are familiar with Isaiah 6 Isaiah says what he says anybody remember woe to me because I'm a sinner I'm a man of un clean lips. It's amazing that in that moment he said he's a man of unclean lips. I think it was put there to be able to remind us that no one, as James talks about, can tame the tongue. No one. I'm a man of unclean lips. And Isaiah knew because he was a man of unclean lips and because he was sinful, he knew that being in the presence of a holy God meant what? Judgment and death. Because God's character is holiness. He's perfect justice, perfect wrath. He cannot have that in his presence. And so Isaiah knew, woe is me. It is over for me. But what did the Lord do? An angel went to the altar of the Lord in heaven, took a flaming coal. And what did that angel do? touched his lips, and what do we know about the process of cauterization? It's, it sears it, but what does it also do? It purifies and heals. That's why still to this day in trauma situations and other things that are going on, they still cauterize wounds and do other things like that be able to purify, save someone's life. But here's the thing. It's painful. When we deal with our sin, men, is it easy? Does it feel good? It's painful. And the reason that it's painful is because God is purifying us to make us more like Christ. 
So if you're going through that, tr that trial right now and things, the difficulties or things in life or even just in your daily prayer life, just know the importance of making sure that your sin is confessed, that you're forgiven and that you're living in that right fellowship with the Lord and you make sure that that sin stays before Him. Well, this process of being cleansed of sin is called what? Do y'all remember that word? The process of being ultimately and completely cleansed by sin in soteriology is called what? It's called justification. What does justification mean? It means that God makes you just as if you haven't sinned. He purifies you and takes that away from you. We see this all over the Old Testament. Literally, the word justified means pronounced or treated as righteousness. For a Christian, justification is the act of God not only forgiving the believer's sin, but imputing to him the righteousness of Christ because of what Christ has done on the cross. This, through the act of justification, is that God has mercy on us, meaning that he doesn't give us what we do deserve and instead gives us grace, meaning that he gives us something that we do not deserve. Mercy is what? What's mercy? Not getting something that we do deserve. But what is grace? When we're given something that we do not deserve. So in this act of justification, this is what the Bible says. And it only comes by what? Justification comes through faith. That's exactly right. Romans 5.1, Galatians 3.24. It talks about how justification is earned not through our works, but rather we are covered by the righteousness of Christ because of our belief in what Christ has done for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talks about this. Titus 3, 5. The Christian being declared righteousness is freed from the ultimate guilt and payment of sin. So justification is a completed work of God. It's an instantaneous as opposed to sanctification in the salvation works of God. What is sanctification? And this is what we're talking about this morning. It is the process that we go through of becoming holy and like Christ. Justification is something that happens at the moment of belief in Christ. But does the Lord take us to heaven right then and there? No, there's a process that we have to go through that sanctification. And that's what the book of Romans talks a whole lot about. What does it mean to become more like Christ, deal with the sin in our lives, deal with the everyday to make sure that we are aligning up with God's way? And we do that, as James talks about, because we have the right kind of faith, not faith that is faith for faith's sake, but faith that is a deep down true belief that causes us to do acts as a way to be able to thank God and to show him that we are thankful for the salvation that he has provided. That's the type of faith that the book of James talks about. Pastor has a great sermon series on this about its faith and belief that has as its fruit good works to be able to please God because we want to live our lives as a thank you to him and to show that it is there. So now we have a clear understanding of why God is holy, we are sinful, and this process of salvation that he takes us through but why is there so much judgment in the Old Testament and no grace? Well, here's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to wrap up with these few points. Let's pray here. Lord, I thank you for these men and for them being here today. I pray as we look at your word, I pray that we will see that you have been graceful from the very beginning of time. Father, I pray when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the New Testament, we're able to see your salvation works are consistent, are reliable, and that you are a perfect judge, perfect holy, but at the same time, you extend grace and mercy for those who believe in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Genesis 6, 5 through 8, here's what it says. The Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. And the Lord rejected or regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor 
in the eyes of the Lord. What do we see in this passage? We see that first and foremost that God is the punisher. Okay? God is the punisher. He does bring judgment. And why does God bring judgment? Is it because of what? He must judge sin. Why? Because of his character. We have to understand these things about God's character. That's why theology and understanding all these things and how the Bible and everything fits together is so important. There's reason to all these things. Okay? In verses 5, we see that God saw the wickedness of man in Noah's time and the evil that was inside man. Now, this is in stark contrast to Genesis 1, when God is talking about in verse 31, when he said that everything that he had made, he saw it, and it was what? Good. Now he looks on creation just a few chapters later in Genesis and says that it is bad. Verse 6 tells us that not only it was bad, but it was so bad that the Lord regretted that he had made man and it grieved him to his very core. And then it goes on to explain God's heart. So, I don't know about you, but that raises a question. God has a heart, right? Is God flesh? We're made in His image. So that means if we're made in His image, that God has a physical beating heart, correct? Another, another theological concept here. Remember, God is trying to explain to us and help us see that which is infinite. Exactly. For those sci-fi buffs, that means he is beyond the fifth dimension. Beyond the fourth dimension, but beyond time and space. Okay? Those of you who are thinking, oh, Will is... Looks sounding like he likes to read Francis Schaeffer and some of these other things. Yes. I'll get into some of this philosophical type stuff uh, because it fascinates me to think about how great and how, and how glorious and the majesty of our Lord. So why is it described here that the Lord has a heart? Well, in theological terms, this is called an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. What words do you hear in that word, anthropomorphism? Morph, okay. Which is, what does morph mean? To change, okay. What's another one? What's another one that you hear? The first, the suffix in that word? Anthro, which is man. The Greek word for man is anthropos, okay. So what anthropomorphism is, is changing something into something that man can understand. For us to be able to just get a glimpse of who God is, we have to be able to have a glimpse of something that we can comprehend. And so God uses things in Scripture that are called anthropomorphisms to help us understand by use of illustration on how deeply God was grieved. And we know that our heart means our innermost being. But yet we have to understand that that doesn't fully describe the regret that God had. What are your regrets in life? Don't say them out loud. Think about them. It's rhetorical. What are your regrets in life? Think about them. How deeply do you regret that? How deeply do you wish you could have changed that? How deeply do you wish that you did not do that behavior? That regret that you feel right there is minuscule compared to the regret that the Lord felt for creation and the sin that it chose instead of God. 
when you start thinking about that, you start to understand some of these concepts of God's holiness and how he must judge sin. The Lord regretted this, and we can't even fathom how deeply God regretted in making man. But this regret caused the Lord in his holiness to judge man's sinfulness. Verse 7 says in chapter 6 that God will punish sin. Not only is he the punisher, but he will look at man and say that you must be punished. Verse 7 says, that which the Lord created, the Lord will now destroy. Remember, stark contrast to Genesis 1. Very stark contrast where God created and God is the ultimate artist beyond anything that we could possibly imagine or be able to create as human beings. But now he regrets that and now he's doing the opposite because of sin. Okay? What we see is this judgment is going to extend to mankind, to animals, to creeping things, to birds. The judgment of God is not just on man, but creation itself. Why? Again, we have to understand God's holiness and the effect of sin in this physical present world. Later on in chapter 6 and verses 11, God explains to Noah that flesh and its sin has corrupted everything. Creation is cursed because of sin, as we see in Genesis 3, verse 17. Part of the effects of sin entering into creation through mankind is how it affects and makes unholy and impure everything. The Bible says in Romans 8, 19 through 23, about how creation groans for salvation because it's tainted with sin. And ultimately, as we know from the book of Revelation, is that creation must be destroyed and judged and a new heaven and a new earth will be created that is without sin for those to be able to live who have believed in Christ. And those who have chosen sin's path are ultimately defeated, judged, and punished forever and ever in the lake of fire and in hell. So in this case, we know that God will judge the earth, though, this first time by sending a flood. The next time he will judge, it will be with fire. Remember seeing the tsunamis in Japan and in Southeast Asia here a few years ago? And the power of those walls of water as they hit the land, as they hit those buildings, as they hit those beach areas, as it destroyed and killed all those people. You remember seeing the devastation? You remember seeing those things? That, I mean, you can go on YouTube. It's all over the internet about live cameras that were rolling at that time as the tsunami hit that land. Again, that's just a minuscule picture of the power of water and what happened when the floods came on the earth and how the Lord judged sin in that day and time. Men, God is serious about punishing sin, but he's also graceful. And he's graceful here in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. And here we got to look for it. We have to look for it because sometimes we can get so caught up in how God is judging things. And we're going to get this here in a second. And the purpose of all of that in the Old Testament throughout what we see in soteriology, which are the acts, the saving acts of God throughout history. But we see in verse 8 that what? that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Why did Noah find favor? What does the Bible say about Abraham? Did Abraham, was he declared righteousness by God because God chose him and said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And because I'm doing that, boom, you're righteous and blameless. No. What does the Bible say and what does Paul say in the New Testament? Abraham believed God. So what does that mean? When God speaks and tells us his word and lets us know something about him, what's the kind of belief in Jesus that we're supposed to have that is a saving faith, not a faith for just faith's sake, that's a knowledge of faith because the Bible tells us even the demons believe in Jesus. Even the demons believe. But they're not going to heaven. Why? Because the right kind of faith 
is a faith in the book of James. And again, I cannot highly recommend pastor series enough on the book of James that he preached here a couple years ago. It's the kind of faith that causes us to live our life in action and in fruit because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So Noah had faith because what did he do? He heard God's word. He believed God and he obeyed. Is that not grace? Does that mean that Noah was perfect? No. What else do we know? We know about it in what happens afterwards, after the flood, about what Noah does, about getting drunk and, and getting, as my kids called when they were uh, little, they called it getting in the nudie pants. And he was in his temple and all this other, I mean, in his tent and all this other stuff happened. And he was in this, you know, debaucherous uh, state and all these other things. Noah wasn't perfect. But Noah believed God and trusted God for his salvation. And as he was dealing with his own sin and the process that's called what? Remember that word? The process of God making us holy, sanctification. Book of Romans is all about that, of that process that we go through from justification through sanctification, through the ultimate thing that we see and are looking forward to that's called glorification when we become like Christ and his body and in heaven, the eternal state for those who believe. That is the kind of belief and why Noah found favor. Gentlemen, that is grace. But where else do we see grace in the Old Testament? We see it. God is graceful to Adam and Eve. How is God graceful to Adam and Eve? What did he do after their sin? And provided for them clothes when they realized that they were naked and didn't know what to do. In his judgment and pronouncing curse on their sin, he still provided for them in salvation. Because remember what the Bible says, that God demonstrated his love for us. And while we were sinners, Christ died. We cannot fathom that love, men. But because we cannot fathom that love, that is the motivation that we have to be able to live a life as Christians as a thank you for God because of what he's done for us in Christ. Noah did that in his life. We see that in Abraham. Abraham, as we had talked about, believed God and it was a belief that caused him to act and move from Ur into the, into the land of Canaan. Lot believed the Lord and his family as the Lord was working through that. Isaac believed God and what God wanted to do. Jacob believed God and God provided his saving acts to the history of Israel. Joseph believed God and God had grace on Joseph as he was used, using Joseph to what? Show Egypt and their gods were false. God will even use people who are righteous before him and allow calamity and other things to be able to happen to their life to help other people see and know that the Lord is God. Interesting study. Each of the plagues of Egypt was an attack on Egypt's gods and the Lord showing that he is Lord and not their lords. Because what was God doing? Even to Egypt men, Lord was giving them a chance, was giving them grace. Turn, repent of your sin and believe. But Egypt chose not to. And God brought the death angel. Egypt was judged. But what happened to the people of God who listened to God and believed him? There was the covering of blood of the sacrificed lamb on the lives of those Israelites, and they were saved. Grace and judgment is in the Old Testament, men. It's all over the place. The Lord also showed in his salvation acts by this judgment that's in the Old Testament, men, and all these things that we've talked about today, what? And that is the purpose of the law. What was the purpose of God giving the law through Moses in the Old Testament? Verse 
Anybody know, remember? Those of you who've been through Ministry Academy or have been through some of our, our pre-Ministry Academy classes in Foundations when we studied some of these things. Anybody remember the purpose of the law? To show us our sin and that we cannot be holy. We can't do it. Because what do we want to do? We want to think that we can earn God's favor. God, look at all these great things that I've done. I've done more of those than I've done of these sinful and bad things. That means that you have to look at me and say, hey, you're doing pretty good there, partner. I'm going to let you into heaven because you're doing all these great works. What does the Bible say? That all of our works are like what? Filthy, nasty, stinking rags to the Lord. Because all it takes is one sin. The one sin of Adam and Eve and it tainted everything. Flesh, creation, everything. And what God has shown through the law is that we could not do what was required because Israel was supposed to have been the example of what it means to live in a right relationship with God, to believe God and then follow him because of that belief. But Israel wasn't able to do it. And the Lord used that as a way to be able to show that man cannot earn God himself because the standard is too high. And that's why God sent Jesus. God even sent prophet after prophet. And think about this in the Old Testament. How many prophets did the Lord send? I mean, he send, sent so many prophets. And what was the message of each prophet? How was it summarized? Exactly. Repent of your sin. Repent means to do a complete 180. Means you're going this way, doing your way of things. And repent means to turn completely in the opposite direction and follow the Lord in his way. The Lord sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel. Is that not grace, gentlemen? But ultimately Israel, and even after the split kingdom, Judah chose their own way. And then God judged them because of captivity, war, and everything else. But what did he promise Nehemiah? and Ezra and Jeremiah and all of them, that he's going to preserve a remnant. He's going to preserve a remnant. That is salvation. And so men, today as, as we wrap up, I want you to know that God's saving acts throughout all of Scripture has been both with judgment but also with grace and mercy. We see it in the Old Testament just like we see it in the New but what I have had to come to grips with through my vacation there in Kentucky and seeing all these things and even getting ready for the study uh, this morning as I had to come to, to grips with. First of all, am I living in God's grace or am I living in God's judgment? That's the first thing. And that grace or judgment is not just for this day and time. That means my ultimate destination. Am I truly trusting Jesus? Am I truly following him? Do I have the belief that God sent him, that he died and rose again on the third day to pay the penalty for my sin? And then am I living in such a way that that belief that I have spurns action? It's the right kind of belief that spurns action as a thank you for what God has done for me. Because what? I know that God knows a whole lot more than I do and, and wants the best for me. And so I do things his way instead of my own way because my way leads, as the Bible says, to sin, death, and judgment. But Christ came to give us what? Life. And life more abundantly, that means life to the fullest. The best life that there is to live on this earth. So men, as we break here today, are you experiencing the abundant life right now? Are you experiencing the abundant life in Christ? Are you following him with every aspect of what you do? Allow the study today to be able to bring you to the point of introspection. To see if there's unconfessed sin in your life, confess it. 
If you need help for something that you're dealing with, we've got pastors, we've got ministers all over this place in this church. We've got deacons, we've got Bible study leaders, we have Stephen ministers, which are trained uh, uh, parts of our uh, church have been through a whole lot of training to be able to help people with struggles and things that they're dealing with. And we even have licensed professional counselors here to be able to help people work out these things and these issues to be able to deal with sin and its consequences. But the only way that you can deal with sin and its consequences in this present world is by having the power of Christ living in and out and through your life. That's the only way we can make it. That's the only way we can make it. That's the only way that we can deal with pain. That's the only way we can deal with grief. That's the only way that we can deal with job loss. That's the only way we can deal with divorce. That's the only way that we can deal with injustice. That's the only way that we can deal with murder. That's the only way we can deal with divorce. Are you living your life in the fullness of what it means to be in a relationship with Christ? If not, confess that sin. Get it right between you and God and get it right between any person that you've sinned against. And begin experiencing that full and abundant life, men. Because God is graceful. And he's been that way this whole time. But no, he judges sin. And we have to go through that difficult pro process of sanctification in this day and time. But we do not have to be ultimately bound to the ultimate punishment of our sin, which is eternal separation from God. Live in His grace. Live in His mercy. Live doing things His way and you won't regret it. Lord, we thank You for this message this morning in the Bible and how You've been acting throughout history in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to be able to show who You are, who we are, and how despite how we do not add up because of the choices that we make that You are still loving and graceful and show us mercy. We thank you so much for Jesus, Lord. I pray you help us as we go from here to be able to live a way that shows that we trust you, that shows that what we believe we are willing to be able to put on the line and trust you at your word, just like Noah did in the days when people told him he was crazy. But he believed you, Lord, and I pray that in this day and time when people are telling us as Christians that we are crazy, that we will live our lives in a way and that we will use our words in a way to be able to point people to Christ. And as the door of the ark was the door of salvation for all who entered, I pray we can show and shine the light of Christ to show that he is the door to heaven and to freedom from sin and all of its consequences. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.